There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in 10 and branch microfiber. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing good, Billy. Glad to be back on the air, over with vacation and uh, ready to cut it up. I'm sure you're not happy to be uh, back from vacation. I actually, you have to always... There's always work. There's there's play and there's work and there's a time for both, right? You, uh, I always get more tired from my vacation than I do from uh, work, you know? Yeah, yeah. The vacation is a lot of work. Believe me, I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I just mean I'm be uh, glad to get back into the uh, the police off the cuff real crime stories mode. Yeah, no, I'm I'm always looking forward to that. You know, guys, with these active shooting cases, which we've been covering, and of course we've been covering the, the one in. Uh, in uh, in Illinois, uh, near near Chicago, um, the Highland Park one. But there was an article in the New York Times. Uh, it actually came out June 2nd. And how apropos for this very story, and in fact, the story obviously of the July 4th shooting isn't listed because it didn't happen yet. But in this story, uh, the New York Times writes, a disturbing new pattern in mass shootings. Young assailants. Oh, how unusual, right? But So young assailants... And six of the nine deadliest mass shootings in the United States since 2018 were people who were 21 years of age or younger, a shift from earlier decades. The two young men accused of carrying out the massacres in Buffalo and Uvalde followed a familiar path. They legally bought semi-automatic rifles right after turning 18, posted images intended to display their strength and menace, and then turned those weapons on innocent people. As investigators and researchers determine how the tragedies unfolded, the age of the accused has emerged as a key factor in understanding how two teenagers became driven to acquire such deadly firepower and how it led them, led them to mass shootings. They fit in a critical age range, roughly 15 to 25, that law enforcement officials, researchers, and policy experts Consider a hazardous crossroads for young men, a period when they are in the throes of developmental changes and societal pressures that can turn them toward violence in general and, in the rarest cases, mass shootings. Six of the nine deadliest mass shootings in the United States since 2018 were by people who were 21 or younger, representing a shift for mass casualty shootings, which before 2000 were most often initiated by men in their mid-20s 30s, and 40s. We see, we see two clusters when it comes to mass shooters, people in their 40s who commit workplace-type shootings, and a very big cluster of young people, 18, 19, 20, and 21, who seem to get caught up in social contagion of killing, said Jillian Peterson, a criminal justice professor who helped found the Violence Project, which maintains a comprehensive national database of mass shootings. 
There is no single easy explanation for why young people are more likely to engage in mass shootings. Girls and women make up a small percentage of all perpetrators. But many of the causes cited most often by law enforcement officials and academics seem intuitive. Online bullying, the increasingly aggressive marketing of guns to boys, lax state gun laws and federal statutes that make it legal to buy a semi-automatic long gun at 18. The shootings come against the backdrop of a worsening adolescent mental health crisis, one that predated the pandemic, but has been intensified by it. Much of the despair among teenagers and young adults has been inwardly directed with soaring rates of self-harm and suicide. In that sense, the perpetrators of mass shootings represent an extreme minority of young people, one that nonetheless exemplifies broader trends of loneliness, hopelessness, and the darker side of culture saturated by social media and violent content. I mean, I think it's so important for us as law enforcement people and for the science of law enforcement and criminal justice and psychology and educators to understand about the active shooter and the fact that the active shooter now is moving a different trend into the age group of 18 to 22. Very dangerous. And when they talk about that age group maturing or lack of maturity and their brains and everything else developing, but it's at a critical period. And this is the perfect storm. And that's why this type of violence is increasing. Billy, there's a very, very uh, critical points that you brought up, but I think there's a couple of components that may have been left out of that article. Number one, uh, the violent video games, the nature of video games has changed the way that you can um, interact with a video game. Now, uh, you know, in our day, video games, uh, they weren't as uh, uh, exact and, and, and as precise and as, you know, you have HD quality now. And when you put on a headset and you can, uh, you could play these games and it's, it's so realistic. I mean, th th you're not even removed. It's almost like you're part of the action. You have that component. And then you have another component, marijuana use. Marijuana use is way, way up. And there's been studies that have been done that show that an underdeveloped brain now, uh, Males at that age, are uh, their brains are not fully developed. They say 25, 26 is when the brain is fully developed. So now you're introducing an intoxicant, marijuana, which today it's just about legal throughout the country. Uh, you could have another uh, intoxicant, alcohol, or any other of the street drugs that are sold. So if you put all those components together and then you add the latest component that we have, which you brought up, is the pandemic, which... It increased video time, screen times in front of computers. It also led to depression. There's been studies done on that, that is too much screen time could lead to depression, suicidal thoughts, all of these different things. So if you take all of these components and then you mush it all together, you can get a good uh, a read on uh, what the background of these shooters are and what the similarities are, the, the common denominators. Now, I think that we would be better served in the United States and in law enforcement, seeking out the common denominators of these people to try and, you know, hone our skills to, to, to figure out who is going to be falling into the category of a mass shooter. Listen, guns are available whether you get them legal or illegal. You can use a knife, you can use a car. We've had those kind of attacks. Uh, generally speaking though, in the last, I mean, we have three shootings over the last couple of months, mass shootings, Buffalo, Chicago, and Uvalde. And 
in all three of them, the age of the person was the same. The background of the person, the profile of the person was the same generally. The marijuana use, the video games, all of the different things. They were sort of, uh, they had a grievance, as we talked about before we went on the air, grievance with society. They seemed to be antisocial. So all of these components. You know, I Phil, think- one, one thing I just wanted to mention, I talked to a lot of people that are in education. A couple of my friends are um, high school football coaches, high school wrestling coaches. And they say not as many kids go out for sports anymore. And I think that's a big statement on society is like kids don't want to get out and get physical. They want to stay home and be on that damn sub- uh, computer screen and have that like little relationship with social media rather than a relationship with human beings. And again, you mentioned marijuana before. I can't help not doubt that marijuana is a causation factor to this, that because Marijuana is absolutely a depressant. It, it's also a hallucinogen, uh, uh, excuse me, hallucinogen. And people, you know, you hallucinate from marijuana. People may argue with me and say that, go look up the drug. It's a hallucinogen. So I don't see anything good about marijuana um, for young kids, especially when your brain is growing, you're developing, you're developing physically, mentally, socially, and throw in uh, some ganja in there. And I don't think it's helping you. Absolutely, Billy. And then one other thing I want to uh, bring up about the fact uh, with the marijuana use, the marijuana of today is 10 to 20 times more potent. There's more THC in the marijuana today than there is of 25, 30, and 40 years ago. So the, the marijuana production is has been uh, really, really uh, accelerated to, to get the maximum amount of THC in the marijuana. And again, these are the chemicals that affect the brain. And when I went uh, into the intelligence division in 2001, we took a course on narcotics. We, we took a lot of courses in a, in a short period of time. It was like a two-week crash course to go into the intelligence division. And they talked about marijuana that at that time, now I don't know if it's the same thing today, but there was up to 100, 150 different components in marijuana that they hadn't identified yet. So you, you, you're taking these intoxicants and you're introducing them to a non-fully developed brain. And of course, there could be side effects and the side effects could be depression, antisocial behavior and violence, obviously. So again, I think we have to focus on that. Talking about uh, gun control is not going to be the answer to this problem. The answer to this problem lies on the individual, the profile of who's doing the crimes. Heidi Lee, uh, some of the sports thing is the lack of parental involvement. I do not doubt that. I took a neighbor kid to soccer practice with my daughter because her parents didn't want to. Gas was expensive, younger children, etc. Heidi Lee, I just know that my son was a competitive wrestler in a club for three years besides high school. I took him all over the East Coast. I'm talking hotel rooms at my expense. The club costs like $3,000 a year. So I don't feel the same thing that you're feeling. I took, I took my son all over the damn world because you know why? I felt it was that important. Not only was it important that he needed to wrestle then, but for the future, wrestling made him who he is right now. And I think sports does that to you too. And parents that deny that, you know, I'm not going to say their kids are going to become active shooters, but their kids are going to be missing a strong part of their developmental um, psychology. And I say psychology because physical sports builds your psyche also. 
You know, Billy, my kids, I have three daughters and my children, when they were small, were into dance and they were in competitive dance. This wasn't just, you know, go to a dance school, take a half hour course. They were really in it like six days a week. They did tons of practice. There was uh, a lot of uh, preparation would go into the competition stage of it. And these kids at young ages, I mean, uh, my daughters were on stage four or five years old and to go on a, a stage and perform, I mean, it builds confidence. It builds character. It was a great thing for my children. Now, uh, you know, everybody has their own thing, you know, whether it be football, soccer, dance, tennis, whatever it is. Uh, I think that uh, competitive sports, uh, it's very good for, for the children. Like you said, at a, at an age when they're growing up and, and you're, you're, you're building a child, you're building their character, you're building their personality. And if they sit in front of a computer screen all day or they play on their phone, they're going to get outside influence that is usually not going to be too good. And a lot of these uh, mass shooters probably have uh, you know, similar uh, sites that they visited, these dark websites and, you know, where they shared uh, the information about what they were going to do or what they were looking for or how they praised other mass shooters. So again, uh, being having kids involved is a great thing. I could say that from experience, Billy, you're saying it from experience. So I think that that's definitely Absolutely. something that's missing today. Folks, this is, I'm going to read a little bit. This is from a study of pre-attack behaviors of active shooters in the United States between 2000 and 2013. And this report was gathered by the FBI. In those years, the 63 active shooters examined in this study did not appear to be uniform in any way such that they could be readily identified prior to attacking based on demographics alone. Active shooters take time to plan and prepare for the attack with 77% of the subjects spending a week or longer planning their attack and 46% spending a week or longer actually preparing, procuring the means for the attack. If you remember the shooter from, um, uh, from Island, the, Park. Island Park, he couldn't, he couldn't do the second shooting that he wanted to do because he didn't plan it well enough, thank God, and he wasn't able to do it. So there it goes right there. A majority of active shooters obtain their firearms legally with only very small percentages obtaining a firearm legally. We're finding that even to this day. The FBI can only verify that 25% of active shooters in the study had ever been diagnosed with a mental illness. Of those diagnosed, only three had been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. We're saying that the word diagnosed is the trick word there because many of these people have mental health problems. The Highland uh, shooter had mental health problems. He uh, indicated a uh, proclivity to commit suicide. He also was uh, indicated that he wanted to kill his whole family. So whether that word is that uh, they weren't diagnosed, I hope that's not the word that's causing all of this statistical analysis. Active shooters were typically experiencing multiple stressors, an average of 3.6 separate stressors in the year before they attacked. On average, each active shooter displayed four to five concerning behaviors over time that were observable to others around the shooter. The most frequently occurring concerning behaviors were related to the active shooter's mental health problematic interpersonal interactions, and leakage of violent intent. For active shooters under age 18, school peers and teachers were more likely to observe concerning behaviors than family members. For active shooters 18 years of age or older, spouses, domestic partners were the most likely to observe concerning behaviors. When concerning behaviors were observed by others, the most common response was to communicate directly with the active shooter, 83% or do nothing, 54%. In 41% of the cases, the concerning behavior was reported to law enforcement. 
Therefore, just because concerning behavior was recognized, it does not necessarily mean that it was reported to law enforcement. In those cases where the active shooter's primary grievance could be identified, the most common grievances were related to an adverse interpersonal employment action against the shooter. There's that term we're getting, the term of uh, grievances, that the active shooter had some kind of grievances, either against society, against his work, against his school. And for that reason, they acted, they acted out. That's a commonality that we're seeing that needs to be built upon by psychologists, law enforcement, and also educators. In that article, they're uh, actually uh, mentioning that the people that are closest to the shooter will notice the uh, the odd behavior. Now, in the, the situation with Highland Park in Chicago, the year that he purchased the gun, in April of that year, now he purchased the gun in November with his father's help, but in April of that year, he threatened suicide. He was hospitalized for it. Then in October, there was a family dispute where he threatened to kill the whole family and the knives were removed from the home. And then a month later, the father purchased him purchases him a gun or, or, or agrees to co-sign for him to purchase the gun. He needed a parental uh, a waiver, I guess it was. But the bottom line is, is that they saw this behavior and I think they should be held accountable. This is outrageous behavior that they knew he was suicidal just a few months before. A month before, he was threatening to kill the whole family. And then you put a gun into his hands. Now, the, the latest pictures that we have of this individual, it just boggles my mind. It makes me crazy that the person that sold him the gun, I mean, I don't know what he looked like a couple of years ago when he purchased the gun, but chances are he looked pretty close to what he looks like now. And how do you put a gun into the hands of someone that looks Look, like Phil, I, I find that the father, if he signed off on getting that, that kid the gun. I find he should be held accountable. I really do. I think that's outrageous. His son had obvious mental health problems. Absolutely. He was mentally ill. And for you to sign off on a gun, what were you thinking, dude? What were you really thinking? I just want to get back to one other thing, and it will be done with this uh, study of pre-attack behaviors. They have something in this FBI report called a methodology. With the goal of carefully reviewing the pre-attack lives and behaviors of the active shooters, the FBI developed a unique protocol of 104 variables covering, among other things, Demographics, of course, that's where the shooter comes from. Planning and preparation. Acquisition of firearms in relation to the attack. Stressors. What were the stressors that the shooter had upon him in order to act out? Grievance formation. There we have that term again, grievance formation. Who is he so mad at that he's going to act out and shoot people? Concerning pre-attack behaviors and communication, targeting decisions, and boom, mental health. The reason I think this report is so important and it's so interesting is because there's been no definitive putting this person, the active shooter, in a box and saying, this is the active shooter. However, there are at least three or four commonalities that says, yes, this is the active shooter between 18 and 22 years old. I think it's important for law enforcement to know this, and I think it's important for all future doctors, psychologists, and of course, school personnel to recognize these things. The, the first minute that someone uh, that's being bullied uh, is having, you know, problems at home, suicidal thoughts and tendencies, I think the question has got to jump out to the family and to that person. Do they have access to firearms? That's the question that needs to be 
right up front and center. Uh, I think another pattern that we're seeing with these uh, profiles of these active shooters is that they were bullied as children or, or even as young adults, teenagers, whatever it may be. So again, they they they, they appear to have antisocial behavior, and the antisocial they certainly behavior, look like the square peg trying to go into the round hole. That's for they sure, hundred percent. And and I think that that leads to because you're not in the the in crowd, so to speak, that leads to the bullying or the picking on them, and then that's where the grievance forms whether they have a grievance with other students like they did in Columbine or they have a grievance with the school. Uh, they, they felt that they didn't get a fair shake of the school, whatever it is, that's where the grievance might be coming in. Uh, so again, listen, we're not going to figure this out in two minutes, but I think that all of the points that we're making and the, all of the points that we're talking about are very, very logical. And are, it's a lot of common sense here because, you know, trying to ban guns in America is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So why don't we go for the trigger puller? That's what we need to focus on. You and I have said that many times, Bill. I want to play a little bit of this. This is, this is from the Sandy Hook shooting. Multiple weapons a massacre. It was a clear, crisp, and trouble-free start to the morning at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Kids like Ella Seavers and her mother Amy, eager for the weekend and the holidays to arrive. It's Christmas time, right? Where are we, Mom, in terms of uh, Christmas planning? Some shopping, cookie making, we decorated our Christmas tree. Ella Christmas list made, mm -hmm. sent to Santa? Yes. Ella's class was preparing to make gingerbread houses. When you first got there? Um, when I first got there, it was like a regular day. But at 9.41 a.m., the children's day and their innocence is shattered. 6-7 St. York School. Call is indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. We heard a loud bang. We thought that something fell. Then we heard another, and then we thought that that was a gunshot. What do you remember? We got to school, we did everything we needed to, and then we heard all this racket. Then we heard them say, go in your cubbies. We thought we had to go because something bad was happening. What did the teacher do then? Um, she read us some books and we talked about things and they played little games in there. And while that was going on, your teacher was reading you books and keeping you calm. Yeah. She just kept her calm and told you a story. She read us the Nutcracker and another book that was about Christmas. Right. How did you find out? Amy? Um, well, we got a phone call from the school saying the schools were in lockdown. Lockdown? I mean, what sense does that make to you as a word for your kids kindergarten through four school? Not very good. Police quickly converge on the school, secure the perimeter, and start a painstaking search for the shooter. A police came in. It's like, is he in here? Then he ran out. That included checking every door, every crack, every crevice, every portion of that school. Our main objective was to evacuate as quickly and efficiently as possible any and all students and faculty in the school. It takes an agonizing hour before it becomes clear just what's taking place inside the school. Next come ominous signs. Ambulances are called, stretchers set up. By 10.30 a.m., police and teachers escort groups of traumatized students out of the school, kids who give the first indications of the terrible scene inside. Kids were crying, not really like screaming, but they felt, they're all huddling together and they're, they got, they got, 
felt so sick. We all put our hands on other people's shoulders and then our teacher held the first person's hand and she let us out. Did you keep your eyes closed? Yes. The whole time? Mm -hmm. And when you opened them, where were you? We were walking down to the fire station. The children are taken to the fire department where frantic parents swarm, desperate to find out if their kids are safe. It was terrifying. It's, it's, I'm still terrified. I think I'm still in shock about it all. I still don't know everything that happens. You're rushing over here and you can't get to where you need to go and you have to park down here and, and walk. When a son or daughter is found, the relief is immense. I was so happy. I just hugged. What goes through your mind when you see her? Oh my God, this is the best day of my life, the worst day of my life, just gratefulness, gratefulness. I mean, the tears come to your eyes immediately when you know that your child's okay. But too many families aren't as lucky. Minutes drag by, no answers on what's going on inside the school. As news trickles out, the worst becomes obvious. Not all of the reunions between parent and child will be happy ones. Okay, these units are the cool. I got uh, bodies here. By 11 a.m., police give the first indications that there are multiple fatalities inside. By 11.50 a.m., they announce most of the fatalities are children. It is almost unimaginable. 27 dead, 20 children. <laughs> News of the second worst shooting in U.S. history smothers the country. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. Unbelievable, right? Almost too hard. Yeah. Too, too hard to accept, you know? <coughs> it's uh. I had the chief from that school come to my college to speak, and it was years and years after the occurrence. And he had just talked about how much he worried about his guys, that they had to live with this vision in their, in their head, in their eyes, in their brains for the rest of their life. And, you know, not to even mention the 20 families of the five-year-olds that were slaughtered. And... You know, it's like you remember these shooters, Adam Lanza. And the, I just remember the story from that was that um, he was mentally ill and his mother had a whole shitload of guns. Like, what was she doing with all those guns when she had a mentally ill son around? And these are the questions, like when we see these, when you do the reinvestigation of a case like this, you know, what were these people thinking? You know what I mean? And And how... Could we as outsiders or, or have had some effect on this that may have been able to prevent something like this from occurring? Billy, it's like uh, each and every case, uh, the, the red flags are there. They just weren't acted upon. And I got to tell you, watching that video, uh, knots in my stomach. I'm getting choked up just watching, seeing those uh, those little children's faces, you know. You know, I remember, I remember where I was when it happened and I heard it and I was just like, I just destroyed, I mean, it's no big, but destroyed my day just thinking of it. I wasn't even, I knew no one from there. I was a stranger to all the people at Sandy Hook. But when I heard what had occurred, I was just devastated. Of course.
course. It, it, I, I can remember watching it on TV. The news at noon came on, and, and initially they said there was a school shooting, and they didn't know if there was any fatalities. And then halfway through the broadcast, they said, yeah, it looks like there's going to be some fatalities. And then late in the broadcast, uh, the, the reporter was almost in tears, and, and he's saying upwards of 20 children killed. I mean, I'll never forget that. It was just a horrible, horrible situation. And uh, I, I just think that um, – if if you look at the commonalities in all of these shootings and you focus on that, there might be a way to prevent something like this in the future. So that's that's really what we're talking about here tonight. And I think I, that's why we're doing this. That's why we're sort of ed- trying to educate our audience and educate the people out there that may listen to us. We may have a little bit of a different perspective on this than, than others, but uh, I think it's important to get this out there. Let me play a little bit of this. This is from Columbine declared the day a day of service and recommitment. This day brings together students, staff, and community to perform acts of kindness for first responders, senior citizens, neighboring schools, community parks, homeless shelters, and others in need of service. This year, more than 1,200 Columbine students will participate in the day of service. And for more information, you can visit columbineservices.org. 12 students and a teacher were killed when the gunman opened fire in that Littleton school on this day in 1999. 24 other people were injured and a memorial for the victim stands in Clement Park located behind the school. I think the uh, video ended, Bill. Okay, uh, let me let me take this off here. So that was a uh, you know Columbine. Everyone uh, that hears that name Columbine immediately remembers what occurred, and you think of uh, Klebold and Harris. I still always remember their names. Those were the shooters. Those were the kids that were bullied. Again, in that report, they talk about their grievance. Their grievance was that they were being bullied and that their kids were picking on them. And yeah. I mean, I think every high school has different groups of kids. In my high school, it were the freaks and the jocks. The jocks were the uh, guys who played sports. The freaks were like, we used to call them hippies, you know. But in uh, in Columbine, it was uh, it was separated like that. And there were the jocks. And then these Klebold and Harris called each other the uh, trench coat mafia. They formed their own group, and then they started making these uh, plans to attack the school and attack the people that, in their mind, we used that that word from the FBI report, grievance, to get back at these people. Yeah, I think that that's uh, something that uh, is definitely a component of all of these uh, similarities with these shooters. So the trench coat mafia, they were probably outcasts from the the jocks or the in kids or whatever it was, and they empowered themselves with firearms. Maybe they were uh, frail or they weren't uh, physically fit. So when they get their hands on a, a firearm and they fire that firearm, it empowers them. It gives them the strength that they lack in the other area of their life. So, and again, the grievance starts and uh, it looks like this is what leads to them, uh, you know, taking it out on fellow students, teachers, whatever it may be. So 
uh, I don't think that we're such geniuses that we're figuring this out or, or that we're, we're coming to these conclusions, but it seems like everybody, you know, the politicians in this country, they just want to jump on the political end of it. You know, uh, the second amendment, get rid of the guns. That's not the answer here. That's clearly not the answer. Uh, there was a study done when they outlawed, uh, assault weapons after, uh, President Reagan was shot. And uh, in the 10-year period that they outlawed, it had no effect on mass shootings. It had no effect on gun violence at all. It actually, there was actually an uptick. Now, there's probably studies that are going to count to what I just said, but the study that the FBI did showed that the uh, amount of time in that 10-year period, it didn't have a great effect on whether or not there were violence with guns, uh, mass shootings, etc. So uh, why would we go back to that if it didn't work the first time? You know, we need to, we really need to drill down. We, ha- we, we have to get a lot more creative than we yeah. are because this stuff is still happening. We had ta- we had spoken before about the parent from the, uh, from the shooting incident in Parkland um, uh, being charged. And I just want to play a little bit of this, uh, the potentiality, could he be, or should he be charged? This a failure of laws, a failure of parenting, a failure of policing. Who do we blame? There's probably a little bit of blame for everybody to go around here. And I think one thing is clear, Illinois had some really strong gun restrictions on the books. And this shows how much of it depended, the enforcement dependent on family members or friends kind of alerting the police to the problems of the child. There's not that much the police can do if they don't know what is happening. But as we also know, there was the 2019 police where they were called and did they do enough afterwards? As I said, there's probably a little bit of blame to go around everybody here. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, was there anything, what could police have done, you know, to prevent him Obviously, he's a suspected shooter here from buying those weapons after his father had signed off on that consent form. Well, we know that the police filed a report that he was a clear and present danger, but the determination higher up did not stand that he had, had a, if he had been determined to be a clear and present danger, then even if the father had kind of co-signed for that permit, they still could have denied the permit. So that you can argue would be a failing of the police. Although they did try to do that report, they did properly go through the channels. Ultimately, as we now know in hindsight, that was the wrong determination. Right. And, you know, of course, we know hindsight is always twenty twenty. But talk to us, you know, a little bit more about what kind of charges uh, Cremo's father could be facing if, you know, if police, if law, you know, if the law determines he was, in fact, culpable here. Well, the most important thing that we know is he signed this affidavit back in 2019, which allowed his son to get the gun when he otherwise wouldn't have been allowed to do it. So he was basically saying that he was responsible, liable for any damages at the time, kind of vouching for him because it was considered to be a public safety issue to have an underage person with a gun. We know at the time, just a few months before, the police were called because of threats he made to kill everyone. The father is now saying through his attorney, he didn't know that much about it. But to me, that means that you're reckless and co-signing. If you didn't know that much about it, you had a duty to find out why the police were called before vouching for him to be safe to own this gun. 
Well, Dina, let's talk legal precedent here. Is there any precedent to charge a parent when their child commits this type of crime? We know there's that similar case unfolding in Michigan after a school shooting in Oxford, but that suspect is a minor. Exactly. That suspect was a minor. At the time that he did the permit, he was also a minor for this Highland Park shooter. I think the big difference between the two, both of them took an action that helped their child get a gun that then ended up being used to kill many people. The difference is that when the Highland Park's son, a father did it, it was like three years before he actually committed the crime. Whereas in the Oxford High School, it was just really a matter of days. So that's probably what his lawyer is going to argue is this was not foreseeable. By the time his son did commit this violent act, he was already adult. He could have already bought that gun by himself. How long did vouching for your son make you liable for his crimes? What if it was 50 years later? That's going to be the argument that it was too long. The time span was no longer foreseeable for the father. Yeah, we know that those families now left reeling for the rest of their lives. All right. Unbelievable how the father could feel no sense of responsibility that he signed off on his son getting a high-powered rifle resulting in this shooting. I'm not saying there's a direct causation effect, but he signed off on his son who's crazy. He's mentally ill. And you're signing off to get a gun. I just I just don't get it. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like this podcast and you're not subscribed, shame on you. Get on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. You see the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family, and they help support us uh, five different levels. So, yeah, I mean, this is such an important uh, topic, probably one of the most important topics that we cover. And, you know, an active shooter, it, it, it's not it's not something that's going to go away. It's something that is going to happen again, unfortunately. We're going to hear about it in the next couple of weeks again. Is it going to be something at a school? Is it going to be in a work or a place of business? But unfortunately, we're going to hear about it again. You know, Billy, I just want to stay on the topic with the, the father's responsibility. Now, I had the, the timing off a little bit. If you saw the, the, the three incidents that took place, it was April, September, and December. April was the uh, suicide attempt or the threat of suicide uh, September was the family dispute where the knives are removed, where he threatened to kill the whole family. And then in December, the father co-signs him for the gun. Now, uh, I don't know what the form looks like that he signed, but usually it'll state somewhere in there that if you provide false information with regard to, let's say, the person's state of mind, if they have mental illness, if they're on drugs or anything like that, you provide false information, you're guilty of either a misdemeanor or a felony. So there could be culpability right there. Again, maybe criminal facilitation because he facilitated the son to have the gun. And then later on down the line, he winds up 
shooting and killing uh, several people at the parade. So again, I don't know what it said on that piece of paper, but I think it's clear. We can make a clear case that the father knew that his son was unstable only two months before or three months before he purchased that gun for him in December or co-signed from the gun in September was when the police removed all the gun, all the knives from the, the home after he threatened to kill the family. And also earlier that year in April, he threatened suicide. So again, the father needs to be held accountable for this as well as the individual who fired the shots. And I think that it's going to send a message that, Hey, Look, it's your kid. I get it. You don't want to. You don't want to. Uh, uh, you know, give your your kid up to the police or something like that. But you have to think about: Is he possible that he could cause this kind of carnage? And again, maybe somebody like that belongs in a mental institution or, or some type of medical treatment. You know, right? you know, folks. There's also in the whole Uvalde shooting in Texas with the seventeen uh, fourth and uh, and fifth graders, and uh, excuse me, nineteen and a total of 21 people. That case is a mess because there's been so many, so much misinformation in regards to that. And it's also coming out, if you listen to the news media, they're uh, painting the picture that the police were cowards in that. So this is what's going on with the Uvalde mayor right now. Coming out in Uvalde and parents there demanding answers. Joining me tonight is Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents this community. Senator, Mayor McLaughlin in Uvalde calls this a cover-up. Do you agree? Well, I think it's clear. I mean, you know, we can look at what happened in Chicago in the last few days in Highland Park. A direct, stark contrast to what happened in Texas. We get a briefing every 30 minutes for the last several days now. In Texas, we got two briefings in a week, and that was it. And then we were told we weren't going to get any further information. Our shooter is dead. Our shooter is dead. Let's be really clear. What are we investigating? The parents of these children, the parents of the injured children are exposed expecting answers and they want answers now the mayor and myself and others in the community are getting demands from our constituents and we're doing the very best we can but right now the people that are doing the this so-called investigation are the ones that are doing this cover-up and that's the department of public safety and that's this district attorney's office let's face it they're not going to indict anybody You think, okay, so in your view, if I'm understanding you right, the slow walking is to cover for them themselves at the state police and the DA? Listen, I, I think that there's errors, there's human errors, there are systemic failures at every level, at every level of law enforcement. The ISD cops, the local cops, the sheriff's office, the Texas Department of Public Safety, even the Bortec people that kind of waited in mass before making the decision to go in. What we have here is a systemic failure and a failure to communicate amongst law enforcement, among many other things. So let's not kid ourselves as to what happened here on May 24th. Law enforcement did not have command and control at any level. And they want to point to the local cop that's used to breaking up the cafeteria fight and saying it's his fault. What happened on May 24th is unfortunately now the keystone example of what not to do in a mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Mass shootings last three Wow. The keystone example of what not to do at a mass shooting. I think he said it well, 
Uh, I've heard so many other things even ha- more harsh than that. Schmitty, thank you for the $5 super chat. Thank you, Schmitty. You know, we'll see it again. We know we don't have the answers. We must find the answers. Proclivity towards such a thing, top priority. Absolutely. Michelle Ballard, thank you for the 449 super sticker. Very much appreciated. So when we go over all these different active shootings, and Phil and I covered the Uvalde case, and from minute one, there were problems with that in the response. And there's problems till gone. now, Bill. There's problems till now. There's there's still differing information coming out. I read an article today that, uh, uh, first off, the district attorney uh, doesn't want to release video fo- footage from the hallway outside the classroom, saying that the act, uh, the investigation is still active. It's probably going to make the cops look bad, and that's why they're doing that. So there is some sort of a cover up. But they're talking about in the last few days that there was a sheriff's officer that had a shot at the shooter before he went into the school, and he asked for permission to fire the shot which sounds absurd to me. And now they're saying that that's not true, that that wasn't the case. So again, there's still misinformation being spouted through. I mean, they got to get their act together. I mean, this is May 24th. What are we July 11th and they don't have their act together. Come on. I think, I think it's a will. It's a actually a willingness right now, not to give the truth out. And they're actually all covering it up right now. Where in the beginning. I felt it was just incompetence in the beginning. Brad Coville, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. When DAs get tough on gun crime and lawmakers bring back mandatory minimum for gun crime, things will settle down. In some way, Brad, I agree with you, but in some other ways, these active shooters, I don't think think that because most of them, their intention is to die during this. Their intention is either to get killed by the police or to take their own lives. So that's, uh, you know, that's a uh, suspect that that could actually be uh, the answer, but thank you for your uh, contribution and thank you for your comments. I, I do think that w- w- what he said, there is some truth to what he said, because if you get tough on gun crime, like we did in previous years, Bill, the, the general uh, violent crime would definitely be affected by that. But with regard to the specific uh mass shooters and stuff. Not sure if that's going to fall into that category because like you said, Billy, they're they're going on a a homicidal rampage and they usually have suicidal tendencies or they don't care if they live or die. So again, uh, you know, that's not really going to fall into a deterrence towards violent crime, so to speak, general violent crime. I mean, Bill, you want to jump on this? Sure, absolutely. Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. God bless you, Bill. Thank you. And his email is joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, folks, when we talk about these active shooters, and especially when I look into these FBI research papers and some of the other people that put out research on this, we're looking for a commonality that can identify the next active shooter before he, he shoots. And, you know, when I say he... I think it's 97% of the time it is a he. Uh, It's very, very rare for an active shooter to be a female. So uh, realize when I say he, I'm not just, I'm not discriminating. It's that happens to be the statistics of active shooters. It's I believe like 97% of the time it it is a male. 
Uh, I want to play something here. This has to do with the um, the confession by the shooter. Um, hang on, let me put this on the screen. Tom Winter for the latest on what we know about the Highland Park shooting. So we know that authorities say there was this confession by the suspect. How does that impact the investigation by police and really the prosecutors putting together their case? Now? In some ways, it impacts it a lot. In other ways, it doesn't. So until he enters a guilty plea, the investigation and all the evidence gathering and all the work that needs to go into it has to continue at this point. So uh, and, and as you just heard from Maggie, there's an ongoing investigation. Was there any is there anybody else here who could be on the hook uh, from a criminal standpoint? Point. So I think that's going to be uh, a focus going forward until he enters a guilty plea. They still got to gather all the evidence. And it is enormous. We're talking about over 83 shell casings that have been found. They're going to find the bullets on the other end of that, map it out on the street, put it all together. Still a lot of work left to be done. Tom, I think one of the biggest questions on everyone's mind is how is it possible that this happened, that this particular person was able to legally purchase these guns with what we now have pieced together about his past, the encounters with police prior, his social media presence? What does that mean in the context of red flag laws in Illinois if those things didn't trigger something there? Right. So, you know, these are going to be simple questions to simple answers to very complicated questions. There was nothing legally that would have prohibited him from buying the gun. So despite the fact that they found 16 knives, a dagger, 12 inch dagger, 24 inch samurai sword at the home, that was not enough. It was not in violation of the law. Despite the fact that he, it, uh, some relatives, somebody said that he was gonna harm himself. Despite mm -hmm. the fact that somebody said that he had a suicide attempt, it was not enough. It did not trigger the particular legal thresholds needed to deny him from the gun. And then to your point, there was nobody that called in either to law enforcement or went to the courts directly to ask for that red flag law to be enacted to take the guns out of the home. So he was able to keep the guns after he had purchased him. This is the biggest challenge with all of this. There's so many different loopholes yeah. and so many different parts of the law. It's really difficult to get their hands on it. What is this shooting telling us about the relationship between the FBI and then local law enforcement agencies? Well, I mean, I think the FBI is doing exactly what their role is here. Uh, they are providing their evidence response team. They helped find this individual. Uh, they have enormous technical prowess. And I will tell you, because I've seen it at the Boston Marathon bombing trial, for instance, they will actually map out with GPS where each one of those bullets landed. Uh, they will construct a detailed video timeline uh, that'll be something uh, worthy of the types of videos that, frankly, we produce here. I mean, it will be abundantly clear in the presentation to the jury, if we ever see it, uh, will be very impressive. So that's their role in this particular instance when there is not a federal crime for them to levy against this individual. Right. Don Winter, thanks so much for your... You know, it's amazing that uh, you always want a confession. A confession, uh, Phil, you worked in homicide. You could have all the evidence in the world. You could have an eyewitness uh, identification of the shooter or of the killer, but you always wanted the confession because that just made the case so much, so much stronger. Uh, Blondie1025, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. You folks are very generous. It's very important for us to, to build this, uh, this show and you help uh, support the show. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and, and in these things, we typically don't find out the one thing that everyone's always looking for, and that's motive. 
Absolutely, Billy. And, uh, you know, just a, a thing that popped into my head, uh, I can remember going on family disputes and, uh, you know, whether it be the, the wife or the mother saying about a son or the wife talking about a husband, one of the first questions we would ask is, do you have access to firearms? That's the things that we always, or any weapons, you know, firearms, knives, whatever it was. So uh, very important. And the fact that police were in that home just three months prior to him getting those gun, uh, the, the firearms, the rifles, and they took away those uh, knives, it's just absurd to me that he was able to... Uh, you know, to purchase the firearms with the father's help. And uh, somebody put it in the chat uh, that there should be a link for uh, when you're purchasing a firearm to uh, a healthcare database to see if there's, uh, if you had any, uh, you know, mental health issues in the but past. But you know something, Phil, that collides head on into HIPAA. And yeah. you've dealt with the HIPAA laws and I've dealt with the HIPAA laws. And sometimes I'd call a hospital and ask about a shooting victim or a perp. And they wouldn't tell us. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm not allowed to tell you because of the HIPAA laws. So yes. it's not that law enforcement doesn't want to do that. It's that they're prohibited or they're, there's roadblocks thrown in front of them. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to. <laughs> you're right. There, there's, there's, you know, uh, the ACLU will get involved and say that we're violating people's rights and you have the HIPAA laws and all of that. But there needs to be uh, some uh, coming together somewhere in the middle here. Where, you know, obviously we talked about safety courses. If you're going to buy a firearm, you got to know how to use it because it could be very dangerous if you don't. Uh, so e even if you have good intentions, you want to go fire at a range or you're a hunter or whatever it is, you don't know how to use the firearm. You need to have a safety course. And again, I think that there should be some type of uh, form that you fill out that asks some questions about mental health. And if you lie on it, you're, you know, you're guilty of a misdemeanor or felony, whatever it may be. So there's things that are in place. Listen, Chicago has the strictest gun laws, some of the strictest gun laws in the country is long along with New York. And it didn't work. They had red flag laws. It didn't work in this case. Uh, whatever reason that it didn't work, we have to patch those holes in, in the system. Well, as pony, thank you so much for the nine ninety nine super chat. You were one of our biggest fans, one of our biggest supporters. Thank, thank you. you. She says, this is very confusing. Thank you for this discussion. Detective Phil and Sergeant Phil. You know, Will, as I'm trying to make it so it's not confusing, but just to realize that there's so many different um, there's so many different areas of this. You know, there's the law, there's the gun control, there's the Second Amendment, there's the mental health, there's the grievance that we're learning about now in, in a lot of the FBI reports is that a commonality between these active shooters is that they have a grievance that they're trying to settle through violence. And that goes right back to Columbine, to Klebold and Harris, that they were being bullied, and that was their grievance. So these are some of the commonalities that we see in those reports by the FBI. And look, these are academic reports, and they take a lot of time and a lot of research, but we need to marry academia with mental health, with psychiatrists, with law enforcement, with criminal justice, and with the education, with the teachers, to, to try to put our heads together and come up with the best practices in dealing with this. Yeah, I can understand why it's very confusing because the media in general and the politicians, they don't, you know, they don't give uh, factual uh, information out. They give their talking points for their party and they give their talking points based on they want to go after guns. They want to go after the Second Amendment. They're not using that terminology, but that's what their goal is. Instead of trying to focus on the problem at hand and, you know, 
Bill, you pointed out about the grievance. You know, if you ha- if you have a six foot ten linebacker from a football team picking on a five foot two, hundred and ten pound kid, uh, you know, hundred and ten pounds soaking wet, he puts that AR fifteen into his hand. Now uh, it, it's not you know he's not going up against the six foot ten linebacker. He, the the level uh, the playing field is leveled, and he has the advantage now. So again, well, Phil, using- I used to say, I used to say, what do you call a man with a gun in his hand? Sir. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's a great point though. That's the great yeah. point. This is where they're they're they seem like they're outcasts from the in crowd or society, whatever it is. So they got the grievance and then they're gonna use the, the violence, the gun to level the playing field. And I think that all of the things that we've spoken about, they're really just common sense. And if you really look at it, and I'm sure that there's uh, there's geniuses out there in the psychiatry field and there's profilers that can really take this apart and look at it. And again, it, it may lie within schools. It may lie within colleges, whatever it is, but the real onus is on the people around the individuals that have this problem. You have to see something, you have to say something. And and that's really where it lies. Absolutely. At bail charge of seven counts of murder. Prosecutor says confessed. Now it's important to remember the case against James and Jennifer Crumbly. Remember the parents of Ethan Crumbly, who was charged with killing four students at Michigan's Oxford High School last November. They've been charged with multiple counts of involuntary manslaughter. They didn't sign any document, but were charged for not doing enough to stop him. Now, I still believe legally they've been overcharged, but so far the case is moving forward. And sure, Cremo isn't a kid. Ethan Crumbly was 15. Robert Cremo, the dad, signed a document taking responsibility for the weapon. And if he knew about his son's ongoing issues, I believe he may end up getting charged, too. But joining me now is Matt Ficori, criminal defense attorney and former Cook County, Illinois prosecutor. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Appreciate it. So you do not think, though, there could be a criminal case against them, huh? No, I do not. I believe, uh, first of all, the the tragic event that's happened hit close to home. Our office is just a, one of our offices is just a few minutes from Highland Park. But from a purely legal standpoint, I think it's a it would be a stretch to charge him. And you touched on it because based on this affidavit, this consent, as you put it, it implies purely civil ramifications. When you hear the word liability and you hear the word damages, it implies a civil case. Now, you're right. Some of those words or some of that language could be used in a criminal case, but you, you hit it right on the head. Um, Ethan was a minor who should be under the constant care, custody, and control of his parents, who, by the way, gifted him a gun over in Michigan. So I think that's a stronger case. Here we have uh, Robert who is emancipated. He's an adult. He wasn't gifted a gun. He wasn't bought a gun by his father. And, and for all intents and purposes, from what I understand, he bought these guns by himself. They were registered properly. And his independent actions, although horrific, should not be blamed or in, uh, somehow uh, conspired uh, with by the father in that sense but but he did buy all the weapons though that and there were four of them i think all when he was under 21 and the only way you can buy a weapon in illinois when you're under 21 is when a parent sponsors you that's correct now i'm not saying the father is irresponsible or immoral i'm saying that as far as a criminal liability criminal culpability there's not enough here if we want to move forward and charge parents in situations like this, which I personally, I think we should, then there's a solution and that's to change the law. But right now it would be a stretch, just like, as you said, in an even stronger case in Michigan, and the law is a little different, but it's similar in some ways. It's still a stretch. It's not as strong of a case 
in Michigan, but those facts and circumstances are better suited for uh, rendering a criminal conviction than in this case here. Here, it's just there's not enough of a causation mm. link to uh, to link. Um, I'm sorry, Robert, with his father to yeah. charge him and file a criminal, Look, I, a criminal complaint. I against agree him. with you that it's dangerous business to start getting into the the business of prosecuting every parent for a, a kid who does something wrong. There are going to be lawsuits, civil lawsuits. When you're talking about involuntary manslaughter, as would be as is the case in the Crumbly case, I guess could be the case here. But do you think the political pressure on the authorities here is going to be too much not to charge the, the one of the parents at least? Uh, frankly, I don't. There's been a lot of uh, political pressure on Kim Fox. She's not exactly known, as you said earlier, as, you know, you want an aggressive prosecutor, so to speak, to take over a case like this and to possibly charge um, the father. Kim Fox is not known in these parts as an aggressive prosecutor, mm. especially based on the last few years in, in the crime in the Chicagoland area and now, unfortunately, yeah. in the suburbs as well. And I, I should be clear, I'm not saying that I think he should be prosecuted. I'm saying that I think he really may be prosecuted. Uh, but look, you know this area better than I do. Uh, we shall see. We'll have you back on when one of us is wrong. Matt? You know, attorneys just have this, uh, and it's the, that attorney is very damn good, but they have a knack just to tap dance, <clears throat> to tap dance around a subject, but they do it brilliantly because they know the law and you can't just, uh, you know, you have to tread gingerly when you're dealing with the law you can't just say oh do this and do that because there's something called the law that you have to take into consideration you know folks i hope tonight that we gave you a sort of a a different view and many many maybe we confused a little bit of you uh, a few of you but we're trying to give a picture of what a young active shooter is by using examples and we also trying to get to your emotions with seeing some of the things that have occurred in this country, that it's not just a uh, Second Amendment thing. There's real people behind this. There's real dead kids behind this. In the Sandy Hook incident, uh, and there's a history. <clears throat> there's a history, look, going back to Columbine. And there's no doubt that there's going to be another active shooter. And I can say that with great confidence. And I pray and I hope, I hope and pray there isn't. But it's going to happen. And we're going to be doing the same things when that happens that we're doing right now. But I just want everyone to understand that we're trying to present this from a police perspective, maybe even a little bit of an academic perspective to try and understand, A, the law, B, what an active shooter is, how it's changed, the, the youth of an active shooter is getting younger, and how some of the th same things pop up every time there's an active shooter incident. Absolutely, Bill. I just want to make a quick comment on that lawyer. You're right. That lawyer was very sharp and he did tap dance through a little, a few things there, but our criminal justice system is set up for a prosecution and a defense. So you have an attorney that's trying to prosecute the charges and you have a, a defense attorney, another attorney that's also going to defend the, the, uh, the uh, perpetrator that's being charged, the person that's being charged. So again, uh, whoever makes the better case and the evidence is all shown to the jury and then the jury makes the decision, that's our criminal justice system in this country. It's not perfect, but I think it's pretty damn good. Um, with regard to what we're doing here, like you said, from a police perspective, we're trying to point out the obvious is 
uh, obviousness of all of these cases. You, you have 18 to 22 year old uh, perpetrators. They've been uh, mental health issues, marijuana, video games, outcasts, grievance, all of these different things that we talked about. Uh, and then they, uh, they want to uh, take it out with uh, firearms and they unfortunately pick on innocent people. A lot of times it was children. Uh, the, the stories that we showed were heartbreaking. I watched that video of, of uh, Sandy Hook. I got choked up several times looking at those little babies coming out of the school with the, you know, crying with their hands on the other kid's shoulder in front of them. It's just horrible. It's horrible. But uh, again, we can't sit and do nothing. I think that the politicians don't seem to really care. They're just, they have their agenda and that's it. Uh, we really need to be looking at it from a different view. And the view is the trigger puller. Like Billy said many times, the trigger puller is the person that's responsible, not the gun. You know, folks, some of you guys in the chat were talking about uh, your kids and how some of your kids have been bullied at school. And I can so tell you right now, there has to be a zero tolerance for bullying in, at any school. And if that occurs, well, what I would do, I would get right down to that school and I would sit the principal's ass down right in front of me and read the Principal Riot Act and get the players in who were, who were bullying my son or my daughter or whatever. And I would make it stop. And if they didn't, I would then I would get counsel. I would get attorneys, and it puts some, uh, you know, put some teeth in the law so that these academia people understand that you're not playing games. You'd light so a folks, fire under that rest. <clears throat> that's what you'd do. Yeah. So, folks in the cool. chat, <clears throat> that's uh, the people that kids are being bullied. That's where I'm coming from. And uh, don't ever let your kids be bullied by anybody. You know. Of and course. Gotta, I mean, it, it, it has so many different consequences. It could be extreme as uh, some of the people we're talking about, but it could have other uh, consequences. You know, a kid might become introverted or have relationship problems or whatever it is. So listen, bullying is unacceptable. It shouldn't be uh, accepted in schools, 100%. And uh, if it's going on with your children, then you definitely should do what Billy said, get in that school and put it to a stop. Blondie 1025, no doubt. I think a lot of parents, especially those where both parents work, are absent. It's no excuse, but it's the reality today. You know, Blondie 1025, I worked uh, I I worked over four or 500 hours a year overtime, plus being a sergeant in homicide. I taught college part-time, and I was the Sergeant's Benevolent Association delegate for all the detective sergeants in Manhattan North. So Blondie 1025, I feel you about working. And my wife worked full-time, was a, an assistant to a big Hollywood star. So we both know what it's like, but we made sure we had time for our kids. If something like that happened, we would both be down at that school, you know? Yeah, it's a fine balance, obviously. But to, to Blondie's point, uh, so I don't know uh, if Cremo's parents were both working and not really involved in his life, but so he's got these problems and you put rifles in his hands. No, that's not the answer. I, I really, really think they should be held accountable. Uh, it's unethical what they did. It led to tragedy, tragic, tragic uh, ending at a parade, a 4th of July celebration. And even the person that sold that kid, that gun, if he looked like he does did in those pitches, that's a no, no tool, but that's a story for another day, I guess. Absolutely. One of my goals with kids is to make them tired so, so that when they get home, they, use dinner, and they, go, they go right to sleep. You know, yeah. my son would wrestling, forget it. He would be, he could, and he'd come home. He wasn't even allowed to eat. 
because he had to keep his weight down. I, I mean, when I think of the dedication of that, you know, and my son, I think he wrestled 152. And I, w- I was like the parent, the crazy wrestling parent. And my wife used to call me the wrestling parent, you know, and I didn't like that. She didn't say that as a nice thing. And I would say to my son, how much do you weigh right now? And he'd be like, what do you care? And I'd be like, how much do you weigh? And he'd go to bed Get weighing one. out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, he, right, exactly. He'd go to bed weighing 155 and he would work, wake up. He'd lose like three or four pounds during the night and he would make weight in the morning. But that's, that's the weird thing. Like some people would say, that's impossible to lose three pounds when you're sleeping. No, it's not. Not when no. you're 17 years old and your body's like a fine-tuned instrument. Yeah, he, would lose, he would lose three pounds during his sleep. How many yeah, women would like to do that? that? How many they, men, right? They, they tell you when you're watching your weight to weigh yourself in the morning, that's when you're at your lightest for, I guess, obvious reasons, maybe all the liquid you take in and food and stuff. But, but you know, conversely, Phil, you could drink a Gatorade and gain five pounds. Yeah. Because yeah. of all that sugar, you know? The sugar, the salt, all of that. Yeah. Oh, so the, you yeah. Know, I always, don't drink that damn Gatorade. You, you can only drink water or something. And then, you know, they would weigh in and then they would get, they would get They'd eat before they wrestled, which was smart. Old-time wrestling coaches were like, don't eat. And my son was like, his coach, who was, uh, you know, from Iowa, uh, wrestled for Dan Gable, would say, right after weighing, you eat as much as you want, you know, because that's what's going to give you strength. Yeah, it's it's going to give you some, uh, you know, that little bit of energy. So it might be the difference between a, you know, a win or not. You know, so yeah. You, you were the uh, you were the the wrestling dad. My wife was the dance mom, and I was a dance dad, obviously. But I got to tell you, we, we there was real dedication. Of course, they would dance till late at night sometimes at these competitions. And if we if it was a local one, we would go home and they would just shower, go right to bed, and you know, six o'clock back up because they would be doing hair and makeup and all of that, and then back to the competition. And, it was actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was like oh, Marilyn Mineta wants that diet where you can go to sleep and lose three pounds by the morning. <laughs> I knew someone was going to be asking me for that. It's called being 17 and being a wrestler and having your body working like a clock, you know? Well, yeah, here's a little tip. Drink a lot of water before you go to bed. And when you get up in the morning, go to the bathroom first. And if you got to do both of them, do both of them. Then weigh yourself and you might get that three pounds off. Yeah. You know, guys, I thought tonight was a great show, and I want to thank everyone that was in the chat. Thank all you folks that contributed to us. Thank all you folks that just listened to us. Uh, I'm uh, flattered that uh, you guys find this show entertaining, and uh, I really appreciate your um, your support in every way. Phil, final words? Final words. Listen, we touched on a lot of things tonight. I hope it wasn't too confusing. We try to just break it down a little bit. Uh, we really feel strongly about the fact that uh, there is commonalities in all of these uh, active shooters, these mass shooting cases, and they really need to be focused on a profile of what the shooter might be. Again, see something, say something. We talked about that. If there's a neighbor next door and, and the kid doesn't look right, maybe uh, if you have to drop a dime on the kid or talk to the parents or whatever it is, uh, if someone's having issues, mental health issues, it could turn into one of these horrible situations. So I always say err on the side of caution, see something, say something very important important. God bless our country. We got a great country. We have these horrible things going on and let's hope and pray it never, ever happens again. However, the reality is there's a chance that it may. Guys, again, thank you so much for listening. God bless and we'll, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe, guys.